Now, since today is Pride in Boston, I just want to say that as Latter-day Saints, the most Christ-like and loving thing that we could be doing in Boston today is supporting and celebrating the rights of our queer siblings to exist in peace without persecution. I believe that's what Jesus would be doing today. You in, Derek? Yes, I'm in. Ooh, I feel like I'm a co-pilot. <laughs> All right, we're going straight in. So um, today is Pride in Boston. It is. So uh, already big things going on there, and tomorrow is the anniversary of the 1978 revelation allowing the priesthood to be given to all worthy males and the temple blessings being given to everybody. Everybody. So we're going to talk about that stuff today, but uh, let's just go ahead down the list of news, and we're going to start with uh, the first headline we came across this week, which was McKenna Denson's lawyers dropping her case. Now, Occam's razor leads me to believe that the most likely reason for the dropping of her case was perhaps these recent revelations they became privy to, uh, the ones that we went over about two weeks ago. But uh, that is that is the best I got. They probably saw that McKenna Denson's case, or McKenna Denson herself, was rapidly losing credibility. That is my best guess. Do you have any thoughts about that, Derek? So I talked with McKenna, if you've listened the last, whenever it was, I talked with McKenna, and that's what she said. I talked with her basically a day or two after Mike Norton's video, and she said, look, my, my lawyers are now hesitating about whether we can win this case. And she's probably correct, given the case that people will be able to make. Um, and Mike Norton apparently has provided all of his info to the church's lawyers who are on the other side of the case. Did they not have this information before? They they probably had a lot of it. I don't know what they had, Okay, but Mike really made sure that they had everything that he knew because I think he did some of his own searching around and yeah, stuff. Yeah, seemed to be uh, the case. So that's it's it's a mess all around, and there's no real good way for anyone to go forward. Okay. Well, that is <laughs> all right. That is that is the case. That is unfortunate for for her, but uh, hopefully we come to a speedy resolution to whatever that case is going to look like in the future. All right. Next thing that we learned about in the last week was the passing of Roy Jeffs. Uh, Roy Jeffs is the child of one of one of the many children of Warren Jeffs, who was, or I guess still is. He's in prison now, serving a life sentence for uh, child abuse. But he was the leader of the FLDS church, and Roy Jeffs was probably one of his most vocal critics as far as his children go. Right. Uh, all we know so far is that he passed away by suicide, but um, for sure his death definitely rocked that community, and it radiated to our community in the LDS church as well. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of these things are tough, and I, there's this uneasiness that many LDS people have when looking at our cousins, and we kind of have to admit that they're our cousins. And there's things that we see that we might remind us of some of us and uh, not be too proud of. And I think that's something to take in mind. There's, there's lessons we can learn, especially about group dynamics, about having a healthy approach to religion, about maintaining a, a safe place where everyone can thrive and abuse is not hidden or just kind of put away in some place where no one hears about it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, that we can look into, not quite as a mirror, but we can look into and say, hey, 
like what work do we have to do right right a lot of the issues that the flds church gets a lot of flack for is their commitment to is insularity a word but like yeah the community is very insular they have a habit of putting their young men through a lot of labor sending them to compounds if they don't uh, fall in line immediately withholding their ability to communicate with the outside world just a lot of stuff like that but um like Derek said, we don't have to necessarily hold up a mirror to ourselves, but we should consider uh, which of our practices or our cultural traditions that we embrace may be impeding on our development as people. Because one of the, what it seemed to be one of the frequent criticisms of, of Warren Jeffs by his son Roy was simply that he didn't really get a childhood. He didn't get an opportunity to properly grow up. He never received healthy education about you know, sexuality, among other things. Um, I remember one thing that he talked about was how when he experienced sexual attraction to people in his vicinity, I think he actually talked about it being one of his uh, stepmothers or whatever, he was sent away, you know, from his home, and he was sent to one of these compounds. So although that is an extreme example, it is something to consider when we continue to talk to our young people and continue to minister to those around us that we don't engage in, I suppose, what might just be viewed as extreme practices to either shield them or to educate them. We really need to allow an environment for healthy personal development and spiritual development. Mm -hmm. And I think if this story of Roy Jeffs, if his passing teaches us anything, it is a reminder of the necessity of healthy learning environments for our children, of healthy developmental environments for our children. Right. That's Roy Jeffs. Other thing we wanted to talk about, like I, like I mentioned earlier, tomorrow, which is uh, going to be June 9th, is going to be the anniversary of the 1978 revelation on the priesthood. Now, for those of you not familiar or joining us for the first time, the church didn't always allow the priesthood to be given to men of African descent. And it didn't always allow temple blessings to be given to all peoples of African descent. Now, 41 years ago, that policy was done away with after the leaders of the church received a revelation. And there are several justifications given by general membership of the church today for why the priesthood and the temple ban was put in place in the first place. But none of those explanations really work. Now, at some point, we're going to have a bonus episode that goes into more depth about these issues surrounding the Black Saints and surrounding the history of race mm -hmm. with the church. But for today, given that it is the anniversary of the priesthood ban, I simply wanted to go over some of these explanations that were traditionally given and then talk a little bit about why they don't quite work. Uh, first off, I believe wholeheartedly, y'all should know this straight away, that the ban was implemented purely because of racism as it's the most plausible explanation and the simplest. There is no documented revelation of the ban's implementation, but uh, here's what members of the church typically say to justify the ban. I think uh, one of the first explanations that came out was that people would liken the priesthood temple ban to the spreading of the gospel first to the Jews and then the Gentiles. Now, anyone who knows church history knows that black men were ordained to the priesthood from the beginning. We talk a lot about Elijah Abel being one of the first elders of the church, first African-descended elders of the church. Now, the very year the church was organized, black men were ordained to the priesthood. So that parallel is probably dishonest and a little inaccurate. Uh, the second one is similar to the first. 
a lot of people like to liken the priesthood restriction to the tribe of Levi parallel. Uh, this one says that God has always discriminated who he gave the priesthood to because the general understanding seems to be that the tribe of Levi were the people that held the priesthood, the only tribe that held the priesthood. Uh, but this doesn't really work either because the Levites were more like temple workers rather than priesthood holders. They're like modern day temple workers. So like in the LDS church and uh, our houses of worship, we have our houses of worship and then we have our temples. Uh, the people who work in the temples are the ones who in effect, officiate in ordinances of salvation in the temple. But uh, a proper equivalent of the Levites, again, are modern-day temple workers, not modern-day priesthood holders, because other tribes weren't really prevented from the partaking of ordinances of salvation. So if you were a Levite back then, yeah, you had the authority to administer temple ordinances, but if you were another tribe, you weren't prevented from getting baptized, you weren't prevented from holding the priesthood, you weren't prevented from the other ordinances of salvation, like black men were prevented up until 41 years ago. Do I understand that correctly, Derek, about the Levites? Right, and there's a number of things that, that make the Levite parallel not at all appropriate, because there is a sense in which even the choosing of Israel, God is choosing one family from which to bless all the other families, right? That's a little bit different than choosing all of the families of the world but one, and denying them something. It's completely the opposite thing. Yeah. So, yes, God chose Abraham. God chose uh, the Levites. God chose, you know, the Messiah to come from a certain people. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing about the Levites is they had some additional restrictions that didn't apply to the other tribes. Like, the other tribes had land. The Levites were not allow allowed their own region. They did not have land. They uh, uh, And land it was a big part of hereditary wealth at that time, and... So the Levites had some advantage, but they didn't have everything. There were things right. that were denied them as well. Um, and here we've got a situation where white men in the church had everything. Mm. Like, you know, all the blessings, all the leadership, all the ordinances, all this other stuff. So that was part of the exchange is the Levites were able to do these priesthood-related functions, rituals. But on the other hand, they weren't allowed to, uh, to own land. And they had many other restrictions about who they could marry there's just a lot of restrictions on, on what they could do and couldn't do that didn't apply to the other tribes. Mm. So it's not like, well, yeah, it's just very different. Oh, I should add, Christ was not a Levite himself. Oh, He was Christ of the was tribe of Judah. That's right. Christ was of the tribe right. of Judah. So, so like they're not, I mean, they're special, but they're not the end of everything in terms of special. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a theory that gained prominence before a lot of the recent historical research. Mm. Uh, and I think we, people went back and looked at like what was going, actually going on in Missouri at the time and, uh, and, and figured out actually this, this uh, racism and the priesthood ban came from a different layer of the history, came from Brigham in Utah and not from, from Missouri, whereas some people at that time before the historical work was done didn't know exactly when it got started. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they were thinking, well, maybe there was some, but yeah, racism clearly, uh, people say, well, we don't know why the ban started. I'm going to get to that too. We, we knew, we do know. <laughs> we do know. Actually, let me make that the next point. Like people say we don't know, but Brigham Young definitely knew. Like there's this quote in 1852 that Brigham Young said, and this is like the first documented thing we have of anybody saying anything about the priesthood restriction with relation to black people. And let me just read this quote real quick. Again, this is from Brigham Young in 1852. He says, If there never was a prophet or apostle of Jesus Christ spoke it before, 
I tell you this people that are commonly called Negroes are the children of Cain. I know they are. I know they cannot bear rule in the priesthood in the first sense of the word. So this idea, sorry, close quote, this idea that we don't know is like fundamentally flawed because Brigham Young clearly knew and that's the reason he gave. He said we were the seed of Cain and that we wouldn't hold the priesthood. So that, that idea of not knowing doesn't really hold water either. Right, and I want to add, and this isn't, this isn't to excuse him at all, but it's to understand what happened, is to some extent he, what he was saying is very parallel to what many other Americans were saying. So what he did is instead of going to God on this, he went to the rest of the American people. Mm. And like that's what other people were interpreting the Bible to mean. And, you know, Revelation is the rock of our church. It's our birthright. Yeah. Basically, there are many cases where we have sold our birthright for this pottage of pottage. lentils, <laughs> yeah. right? Where, where instead of actually getting knowledge and, and breakthroughs on this, we just follow along with, with the American, uh, general American f- theology about these things. And that's the whole point of re- the, what the restoration is about, is we don't have to do that anymore. We don't. And um, and sadly, we do that again and again mm-hmm. um, on many other social issues in our time. Absolutely. And this is like um, you actually highlighted perfectly another issue I wanted to bring up with uh, with the priesthood ban. And that is that a lot of people will use the excuse that everybody was racist back then. You know what I'm saying? Like I readily acknowledge that is true. Everybody was racist back then. And at this particular time, the church was gaining a lot of converts from the south, many of whom owned slaves. So perhaps Brigham Young was trying to earn their favor. I'm not going to speculate too much on that, Mm -hmm. but I will say that the timing is suspicious. Now, the excuse that everyone was racist back then is more honest than previous explanations, but it's still lazy. Like, does that mean that God was trapped by historical circumstances? And and does that mean that racism was okay? You know what I'm saying? Mm. Just Well, what we should say is every white person was racist. Thank you. Because <laughs> showing if you my look, own internalized anti-blackness, there. like if you look at the writings of black people from this time, mm-hmm. like they actually stood up saying, "Hey, look, we, you know, um, yeah." I, I think, especially like Frederick Douglass, is a good example of saying, "Look, no, we are equal," and and that's like exactly the a counter example to this idea. Well, everyone was racist back then. No, there were people mm-hmm. saying, "Look." get with the program. It just so happened that those people were black. Mm. And, but, but yeah, there were voices from the time saying this is wrong and yeah. we need to listen to those voices. Need to listen to I those mean, voices. Yeah. I don't so want to talk just, about it too much. No, it's cool. I will just amend that to say the people in power, all the people right. in power were the racist yeah. ones. Okay. So two more points I want to make. Uh, one is that the assumption that if a revelation was required to end the ban, then a revelation must have started it. But we only have one revelation on race, and it was recorded and canonized in official declaration, too. We have nothing of the sort for the institution of the ban. So that, that theory doesn't really hold water. Right, and it's like when your GPS recalculates, it's because you made a mistake. Yeah. It's Ooh, <laughs> I like that, Derek. And so just because, just because a revelation was required to fix the problem that we started, like if we get off track, God's going to set us on track. That doesn't mean that a, re- that a revelation, just because a revelation ended it, means that a revelation must have started it. Oh, yes, Derek. Yes. <laughs> it's a whole word, man. I like that GPS thing. I got to 
What, what, what time mark are we at? About 18-minute mark? I got to remember that. That's a, that's a word. All right. So, um, and the final thing I want to bring up is that Mormons love to say that the prophet will never lead us astray. This buys into prophetic infallibility, which the church has disavowed several times, which the scriptures refute in many stories, and which violates the notion of agency. So, like, bottom line is if a prophet has agency, then a prophet can make mistakes. Taken within the proper context of when that quote was originally uttered, that quote demands a different interpretation. And we don't have to get too much into that today, but I'll just say that, you know, just pulling from Brother Brigham Young's words again, you know, I'm going to quote Brigham Young here, but he didn't seem to interpret this idea that the prophet will never lead us astray so literally. Because what Brigham Young said, which really resonates with me, was that the prophet isn't capable of leading us astray if we're in tune with the Spirit. If we're ever to be led astray, it's going to be because we allowed it. It's because we deserve it. It's because we are not in touch with the Spirit. Like Brigham Young would talk about how several times, if he were to say anything that was false or anything that rubbed people the wrong way, it wouldn't be too long before he heard it. You know, the prophet would not be able to lead us astray because the general membership of the church is supposed to be in tune with the spirit. And if we are in tune with the spirit, Mm -hmm. we truly will not be led astray despite the foibles and other failings of the prophets. Yeah. One thing I want to say real quick is if you look at the, you know, the prophet will never lead the church astray in Woodruff's context when he said it, he was talking about the change around polygamy and the ending of polygamy. Yes. Which the, the, in context, you should deploy this quote when the church is making a change in the right direction that the saints aren't prepared for. That's when you say mm. the prophet won't. You never use that quote to justify retaining the status quo when you don't even know where the status quo came from, mm-hmm. whether that mm-hmm. came from God or not. And I think this is happening a lot where people are uh, just using this inherited, you know, the traditions of our fathers that must somehow it must have been right. No, I mean, you deploy that quote... When there's a controversial change that the saints think might be a mistake, and I think 1978 could have been one of those. A lot of people, if we have revelations around LGBTs or women or any of these other things that people say, well, that will never change, mm-hmm. we're going to have to bring out this quote. I mean, that's <laughs> when you, and that's really what Woodruff was in his context, because a lot of people thought polygamy was tied to exaltation and tied yeah. to the existence yeah. of the church. And they did because because we've got quotes from them saying things like that that mm-hmm. yeah it's necessary for the anyone to become the son of God to to um to adopt polygamy Brigham said very clearly, and so with that background the change was so difficult for people that that's why Woodruff had to say what he said and I agree also that to lead astray doesn't mean that you can never make any mistake that the going back can to never make any mistake go yeah going back to this GPS analogy. What I what I think it means is that that the GPS will never ultimately keep you off the track forever. It will always get you back on, but it doesn't mean that you can't wander. It will always get you back. And I think, um, given that that the priesthood and the ordinances um, are still valid, you know, all these other things, the church didn't disappear. Yeah. Even though we've made these significant mistakes um, that are really without excuse. It didn't destroy the church, and the church is still here. And that's what it means by led astray, to leave to lead you permanently off the path towards salvation. That's what mm-hmm. I think astray means in context, because that was the worry, like, oh, if we get rid of polygamy, then the whole program is gone. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's he's saying, no, we're, we'll still continue. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was the last point I wanted to bring up. I just want to kind of like put a little button on this section by saying, like to be clear, I just want to say once again that racism is the most likely answer to why black people were kept from the temple and priesthood blessings and that anyone who tells you otherwise is probably ignorant or dishonest. You know, we got to acknowledge that this is the simplest explanation for why my people were not able to go into the temples or hold the priesthood and that these other explanations that are traditionally given are simply not totally there in terms of explaining the spiritual and emotional and intellectual dispossession of my people for so long in this church, about 126 years to be precise. But uh, that's what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next thing, similar in this vein that I want to bring up from news this week. Derek, did you by chance get a chance to watch When They See Us? No. Okay. Let me just tell you guys about When They See Us very briefly. When They See Us, for those of you who don't know, is an Ava DuVernay film. Shout out to her because she just keeps churning out cinematic yeah, I saw the trailer. I didn't see the... Yeah. I'm going to tell you about this trailer, bro, because like that was... I'm, full disclosure, the trailer is the only thing I've seen. Oh, okay. You know? The trailer was enough to make me frustrated and angry. Now, this, this film, this is a four-part miniseries. It's, the whole thing is about four and a half hours long. But the subject of this film is the Central Park Five and their, and their case. Now, it's, a, it's very hard to even read about the case because what in essence happened was five young black and brown men around the ages of 14 or so were arrested and convicted for a very serious crime, you know, a rape in Central Park. And this was in 1989. Ultimately, these young men lost 12 years of their lives because of this crime that they were ultimately exonerated for. There was no evidence to tie them to the crime, but these young black and brown men were perfect targets. They were black and brown, they were poor, they were young, and they had no idea how the legal system worked. They were like, if there's anything that this film shows really well, it's how the system is rigged. How there is a system, because it shows the prosecutors, it shows the judge, it shows the police working in tandem to, in essence, make sure these young men get convicted. And then we just watched these men lose so much mm -hmm. of their lives, you know, again, 12 years of their lives. And that was a very, like, just watching this in the trailer was a very traumatic thing for me to experience. Like, it made me angry. It made me sad. However, the primary purpose I have in bringing this up is because if you're American, if you're white, if you're a Latter-day Saint, this is an opportunity for you to really get to know black pain, black rage, and black trauma. You have to come to know these things because if you're not making an effort to understand black pain, black trauma, and black rage, I don't think you're making enough of an effort to be like Christ. Christ is always... Ooh, that's good. Thank you, Derek. Christ has always been on the margins. What made Christ the perfect... Well, part of what made Christ perfect was he was the perfect empath. He descended below all things so he could understand all things. And he spent the majority of his ministry on the margins. So if we're not making an effort to really understand the people that are around us, then we can't minister to them. Like you can't really minister to black folk if you're not making an effort to understand their pain. And one of my greatest um, worries and or regrets, I don't know what the right word is, but is that... While we have 13% of our population in America that is black, less than 3% of the general church membership 
is black. Now in America, we consistently rank high to be among the most spiritual and religious, at least according to the Higher Education Research Institute. Yet, when it comes to the pews in our churches, we number very, very few. We don't come close to that 13% number. And I keep thinking to myself, more of us belong here. We need the restored gospel as well, but we are not going to do a good job of ministering to our black brothers and sisters if we're not making an Mm -hmm. effort to understand their pain and their trauma. So to my white brothers and sisters in America, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when they see us is an opportunity for you to learn and to therefore be more equipped to minister to your black brothers and sisters. So I would implore you, watch the film if you can make the time, Mm -hmm. and it would be to nobody's benefit but your own and to the black people you would eventually minister to. Please watch the film. I do want to connect this with the um, recently the NYPD officially apologized, which apparently they had never done before, for the Stonewall raid. Mm. Um, and I thought about that. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But my but my one of my first thoughts was the NYPD needs to do something about its treatment of black and brown people today. Yeah, like they're apologizing for this. But why not stop the things today that they're going to end up having to apologize for in 50 years, right? For real. So I think there's just this element of, oh, like when there's gay, white, cute, gay, white men, that we can get behind, when that really wasn't what Stonewall was centered on anyway. Right. But what did it, you say it was, a couple weeks ago? Like, uh, the, like it was actually started by trans women of color? Right. Because the thing is, at this time, so many of the... Um, the people who weren't in power had to stick together, right? Mm. And so you would have these communities that would accept all of these people who were marginalized. And so you had, uh, like, Marsha Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were some of the leaders, and I think they were the ones who... There's a dispute as to who threw the first brick at the cops, but they were definitely at the center of, of, the, of the resistance at Stonewall. And we should remember that, and... And we should think about, like, what are cops doing today to communities of color uh, and, and, like, say, hey, this, this needs – we need to do something about that. And you can't just put a rainbow on the NYPD <laughs> and be happy yeah. because that's not, that's not cool. And you can't, you can't talk about LGBTs without talking about people of color because if you lift up just the white ones, that's – you haven't done anything. You need if you want to lift up all LGBTs, you have to lift up lift up people of all colors and all ethnicities. Unless uh, otherwise, you're going to leave people behind. Mm. Thanks for sharing that, Derek. All right, that's all I wanted to say about uh, that, uh, Derek. If you don't got any other news, I'd love to move on to the Come Follow Me. Sure. All right, cool. So this week's Come Follow Me focused mostly on John 12 through 17. Mm-hmm. Now. A lot of this is focused on the end of the Savior's life or like the final days of his ministry. And therefore, the primary thing I wanted to focus on was what Jesus ended up repeating in these final days. We don't really have a lot of Jesus repeating himself in, in the New Testament. So I just found this super interesting that one of the central teachings to this particular lesson was Jesus repeating a commandment to love one another. His final instructions to the 12 were about love. It was, as, it, it was as if to say, I know we've been over this before, but let's just make sure we're clear on this bit. And then he goes on to say, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as, that ye love one another 
as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have, if ye have love one to another. There's a whole song about this in the hymn book. Right. Yeah, if you're LDS, you already know that. But uh, the previous commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. But this new commandment is to love one another as Christ has loved us, which is a significant difference. This, this to me is the equivalent of the Book of Mormon's definition of charity as the pure love of Christ. I feel like this is what Christ is giving mm-hmm. to his disciples. Now, uh, this is the last thing Jesus is sharing with his apostles before he's to be crucified. And that's significant to me. He wants to just make sure that this is really driven home. Love other people as yourself. Love them more importantly as I would love you. Now, considering that we're told we only have a portion of the things that Jesus did and taught while he was on this earth, that we have a repetition and refining of the Savior's own instruction by the Savior himself is significant to me. Now, since today is Pride in Boston, I just want to say that as Latter-day Saints, the most Christ-like and loving thing that we could be doing in Boston today is supporting and celebrating the rights of our queer siblings to exist in peace without persecution. I believe that's what Jesus would be doing today. Now, given our own history of persecution as Latter-day Saints that we celebrate with every trek in Pioneer Day, <laughs> um, we should be among the first faiths present at these events to celebrate their ability to live and exist in peace. That is Christ-like love to me. And that, again, is one of the final lessons that Jesus Christ gave before he was crucified. Yeah, I imagine one day there will be a pride parade in Salt Lake City where you will have rainbow hand carts at the front and the <laughs> prophet at the back. <laughs> the prophet will be there. Yeah. One, one day, you know. But I just wanted to say one thing real quick about... Um, the Gospel of John and uh, sort of the queer approach to theology. There's this scholar named Ted Jennings. I meant to have sent this to you, and I don't think I did. Uh, but he came up with this idea that in the, in the narrative of the Gospel of John, there's this particular character called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mm. And Ted Jennings looks at this, and notes the intimacy there because the disciple whom Jesus loved is reclining against Jesus' chest at the, at the supper. Um, there's an intimacy there that, that Peter asks the beloved disciple to ask Jesus something. Like, it's kind of like if you're, you know, you know <laughs> if you want to go, uh, you know, it's almost like if you know someone's really important but you know their wife and you're like, oh, tell the wife and the wife will, mm. you know, it's a way of... Uh, there's, so there's some degree of intimacy that's not clear in the Gospel of John. Now, Ted Jennings does, does end up taking that in a very homoerotic direction, uh-huh. and I don't exactly. I, I don't think we can show that there was a sexual relationship there, and I don't think we ha- Here's the other important point. We don't have to show that mm. because, the, because queer identity and, and queer justice isn't really about gay sex at all. It's about loving in a way that transforms the world and transforms the culture, which is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's mm. creating a new family with his disciples. It's actually an alternative to a, like a biological nuclear family. He's saying, no, look, we're, we're doing something new here, um, and this family will be grounded and defined by our love for one another, which even transcends for our love for our biological families if they reject us mm. or if they don't uh, get on board. And I think that's that's where the you don't need to prove gay sex. I think there's this idea on both sides that you need to f- either find gay sex in the Bible or prove that it's not there. I'm like that's this isn't even about sex. <laughs> this is about love. This is yeah. about 
a love that is trans culturally transgressive, and that we can say Jesus's new um, community of love was culturally transgressive. Um, and I think that's where we can go. We don't have to go all the way to what Ted Jennings said and 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 suppose because we can't really prove that. And I think it's it's risky to try to pin LGBT dignity on something that we can't conclusively prove, yeah. right? And we don't need to either. And so that's that's where I I want to go with this. And I just love how um, how the Gospel of John reemphasizes this idea of love. And the whole foot washing scene oh, is yeah. extremely transgressive. And you can tell, okay, people, how do you know when something's transgressive or not? You look at the characters in the narrative and how they react. Peter said, no, you can't do this. Like, he was offended that Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet. Mm. So you can tell that there is this major faux pas yeah. that, that Jesus did, taking, taking upon himself a servant's work, uh, essentially humiliating himself. Mm in order to teach the, the disciples what they should do. Mm. And there's a whole lesson about um, those with privilege taking off their privilege, just like Jesus Remove stripped his off out his outer garments and yeah. put on a towel. That's what people who have privilege need to do. Mm. And so that's where I'm going to end my comments on John. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. Let me just say real quick, I really, like I love Peter because I see so much of myself in him. Uh-oh. Just the <laughs> Just the brazen brashness of which he'll be like, Lord, what are you doing? Like, why would you do this? Like, why are you washing, me f- why are you washing my feet? And then Jesus explains himself calm- calmly, and Peter's still like, no, you ain't going to wash my feet. You're not going to do that. And then he does a complete 180 after Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, we ain't, bu- we ain't boys. And, you know, Peter's like, all right, wash the rest of me too. Get my hands, get my head, get all of it. Just Peter is like, like, I just really resonate with his, like, his brashness and his impetuousness. Just mm. that. He's such a knucklehead, and I, like, love that about Peter. He's such a regular dude. Like, we see this in, I mean, we see this in his eventual revelation to take the gospel to everybody. Him diving in the water once he sees Christ, just like, Peter, man. That, that, that's my guy right there. <laughs> he just makes me feel so much better about where I am as a person. Like, this man was going to be the greatest of everybody once Jesus left, but... Even he had his things, and we see that he had his things. At the end of this verse, at the end of the, this chapter, you know, Jesus straight up tells him, you're going to deny me three times, even though he just professed that he would die for him. So Peter should be a lesson in humanity to everybody who was on the path of discipleship. Right. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Anyway, that's it for uh, Come Follow Me. So now it is time for the prayer roll. And oh my gosh, it has been <laughs> it has been a week. I have a pretty long list, but I did narrow it down to one. Uh, Derek, why don't you go first? Okay, so I want to talk about, I don't even remember their names. Their names aren't that important. They're we not should, important. It's the people in Boston here. You will think, well, Boston of all places. <laughs> they decided. One of the most gay-friendly cities. On, it is, but there's pockets. And people think pockets. that, people also think the North is not racist. And boy, there's, we've got problems here too. Boston is the most segregated metropolitan area. In the country. And we, uh, but anyway, so there's the straight pride march that's going to happen, or allegedly they threaten to happen. Um, and so they, what it is, is like straight people are used to getting everything. Mm-hmm. So then once the, once the queers came up with, oh, we actually have something 
to celebrate, you know, we're celebrating our survival, we're celebrating the fact that we are not afraid anymore, then these straight bros are like, oh, there's something kind of fun looking. I need that too. I mean, it's, it's a very... Why'd you use a Southern accent to say that? <laughs> <laughs> See, I use this when I do an imitation of evangelical Christians. I put on a Southern accent, but you just like, you just put one on and talk about to pretend to be straight. So, Well, I don't know. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, I, let, let me just say there is a way of sort of doing straight pride correctly. I wouldn't call it pride. But I think if, if a straight person is confident and secure in their own orientation, it allows them to, to be less fragile. It allows them to acknowledge their privilege and to use their privilege for the good of others. I mean, there's a way of being okay with being straight. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not anti-straight. I'm not, I'm not the one that's out there saying your orientation is wrong and you all need to convert. I was it. hoping you would say, I have straight friends after that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I do have straight friends. Like, yeah, I am. Um, like, you won't believe how many people I meet in the LDS world and I tell them I'm gay and they're like, oh, I have a gay brother. What, what I'm going to do is, no. what I'm going to do is when they t- introduce themselves, I'm going to say, oh, I have a straight sister. <laughs> Isn't that cute? <laughs> yeah. But so, so there's a way of doing straightness. In, in a way that, that's healthy and that doesn't... Because the thing is, straight people are limited, too, by homophobia. Mm-hmm. The, the choices there are, are very much narrowed, especially for men. Um, in a, the, what straight, I can do a lot of stuff that straight men can't, can't do in our culture because, because then they would be accused of being gay. Mm. Um, even, in, even things that aren't gay at all, but just like affection between men... Yeah is off limits for a lot of men who are starving for some type of connection. But anyway, let me get back to the straight pride. I would just want to say here that straight pride is hate pride. Mm, okay. Because what they're doing isn't celebrating the fact that they're straight. What they're doing is celebrating the fact that they're not gay. Mm. And they're say and they are so frustrated with the fact that gay people are now inching towards some degree of getting close to equality. That they're threatened by that. I mean, they have everything already. Like, they don't have to wait and wonder when we're going to have our first straight president. Mm. Like, we've had 44 of them in a row because there's one <laughs> president that I don't – there's one president I don't acknowledge, right? <laughs> so we've had 44 presidents. All right. And, <laughs> and they've all been straight so far yeah. as we know. I mean, there's this idea that Buchanan might have been gay, but we've never had our first out gay president yet. Uh, but anyway, so my point is, what are these straight people needing acknowledgement for? They have the whole world already. Mm-hmm. I mean, every month is already straight pride month. And they, they, they control the power. They control the culture. They, they have everything. Like, what more do they need other than, oh, we've got this, what they see as a party. And they don't realize what we're actually celebrating. And they, would, they should rather be celebrating the fact that they don't need a pride parade. Mm-hmm. Right, that they did not go through the things that they put us through. Yeah. Right, and if they hadn't persecuted us all along, there would be no gay pride. There movement. would be no need. Right, there would be no need for that. I just want to say that gay pride is very much a survival thing. Like mm. some of us, especially our young teens that are vulnerable, are kept literally kept alive by the gay pride uh, parades and marches and all these other things. Um. And, and it's this straight. Uh, it's kind of like it's like asking. It's not the parallels, not exact, but it's like asking, where are the all the non-handicapped 
parking spaces <laughs> and then going and parking in the handicapped parking spaces. Yeah. Like all these all the parking spaces already for you and They're you're trying to take you. the ones that are that are reserved. Mm-hmm. So that's what it is. And um so so my response to the straight pride, let me tell you a parable. I love the fact that Jesus taught in parables. I have a lot of parables myself, but I don't really teach with them because I'm not Jesus and I'm not even close and I don't even want to start, you know, I don't want to, you know, but here's one of my parables. Okay. Okay. So the kingdom of God is like um, a few young kids who were building snowmen in front of their, right on the curb of their yard. And this rich, mean guy comes with his expensive vehicle and sees these little snowmen along the curb and says, I'm just going to smush them takes his car and runs over the kids' work. I mean, they labored all morning to make these little snowmen. And then, uh, and then the, of course, the kids were so upset, and the, the sadistic rich guy in the car was happy. Then, the next, then it happened again. But then on the third day, they brought one of their friends over, their other kid friends, and the other kid friends told them, he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take our little snowman and we're going to build the snow around this fire hydrant that's right here. Okay? So that's what they did. They built a snowman around the fire hydrant. Then, sure as clockwork, this dude comes in by in his really expensive BMW and smashes into the fire hydrant. His car is ruined. He gets out, he's crying, he's stomping, and his car is totally ruined. Um, and that's the end of the parable. So this is my theory, and here's what it means. Now, Jesus, now I learned from Jesus, he didn't explain all of his parables, he explained some. I, I need the title of this parable, by the way, Derek. Like Jesus the, had titles for parables. <laughs> so, uh, the title is The Parable of the Rich Man and the, and the Snowman. Thank you, Derek. Okay. Needed that title. The parable of the rich man and the snowman. So, the, so what it is, is I'm like the kid. So my identity, I have formed around Christ, the way these kids formed their snowman around the fire hydrant. So if anyone tries to run into me, they're not going to hurt me. They're going to run into Christ, and they are going to go boom, and they are the ones that are going to have a problem. So all these straight pride people who are like try, thinking they're going to hurt me, with everything they do to me, they're actually doing to Christ. Mm. And that's kind of my uh, resistance to, to all of these things that uh, would otherwise bother uh, people who are LGBT. And, and, they, sh- and they should, right? Th- these mm-hmm. are not – all of the pain is valid. But this is my particular approach. Like I have formed my identity around Christ so closely that anyone who tries to attack me – it's not going to attack me. It's actually they're just going to bump up against Christ, and they're going to have a major problem. Mm. And uh, the other thing about the Pride Parade is these straight people. What they don't realize is all of the all of the. I hate to say it's sad, but there's a sad experience that you may have never seen of people going to Pride in the city, and then riding the subway home alone, and they take off their stickers. They take off their flowers. They take away the the the, uh, the rainbows because they know that they're not going to be safe walking home like that mm. in their own neighborhood. That is something a straight person will never, 
uh, experience. Yeah. Being, I mean, you will experience violence and pain and all this other stuff, but not, but because, not because you're straight. Correct. And even in Boston here, this happens where people have their rainbows out. And I wear my rainbow all the way home, right? I, I'm not afraid. I, I'm privileged to live in a particular uh, area, and I'm also not that afraid. And then, it's, and then it goes back to, you know, the pink triangle. Well, maybe people may not know about this, but the pink triangle is what the Nazis put on my people in the concentration camps. And that was one of the first gay pride symbols. The, the, the rainbow flag was adopted to have a more positive, self-defined identity, like who we think we are, not what other people said about us. But we should never forget the pink triangle um, and we should never forget who's marginalized at Pride even today. Mm. Trans people, people of color, people with disabilities. Um, there's just a lot of people who can be marginalized at Pride. And, and we have to not replicate all of the oppression that has been done to us. And the other thing I want to say is, no, I don't think I want to get into the riddle scale of homophobia. Just if you want to think about homophobia fairly critically and analytically, there's a scale of eight possible levels. And um, acceptance is really in the middle of the scale. It's not even at the at the full affirming end. Mm. Um, but we should think about that. It's a continuum. It's not an all or nothing thing. Am I a homophobe or not? And if you ask that question, you probably are now that <laughs> I think about it, right? But um, we shouldn't center... Like people's, whether the allies are, are how they feel about their own ego, right? It should yeah. be about are they serving and being accomplices to the people that they are supporting? Right. And that's the only question they need to ask. They don't need to ask, am I approved or not? Do I get this gold seal approval from my gay friend? You don't need that, and it, that's not helpful. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much what I wanted to say about this straight pride parade. Hopefully it will be blocked if it's not. There needs to be a counter-protest, and everyone needs to be there mm. to show that this is not um, something that we're going to tolerate. Very good. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that, Derek. Really like what you had to say there. And if we don't get to the Ridley scale of homophobia today, we can always, you know, we can always have a whole episode about this yes. stuff. You know what I'm saying? Bonus content. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But um, so I'm putting on the prayer roll... KUTV2 News. Utah had a bit of a rough week in terms of racial relations. I'm going to talk about, there was a young man in Utah, in Provo actually, not too far away from BYU's campus, named Jeremy Sorensen. Now, details of this case are still emerging, but the basic thing is Jeremy Sorensen was a 26-year-old unarmed black man who was fatally gunned down by a passerby, by a vigilante. Now, the details, that, as we have them so far, was there was a domestic dispute between Jeremy and a white woman. Somebody nearby drove up in their car, reportedly, at least according to the police report, warned Jeremy to stand down several times, apparently, and then when he would not, shot him twice in the chest, and he died at the scene. So that was pretty much the end of Jeremy's story. Now what KUTV2 News did initially when they ran the story was, first of all, they didn't release the name of the white woman he was in a dispute with, nor the white man who shot him. 
they just talked about Jeremy Sorensen, and they talked about his criminal history. Now, first of all, they used the word vast criminal history, but guess what his vast criminal history was? They ranged from dismissed dismissed charges of littering to dismissed charges of domestic abuse. And they spent the majority of the article talking about this man's criminal history as if to say, this man deserved to die. Now, this is not singular to KUTV2 News. This happens a lot. Character assassination of black men once they are killed is a very frequent thing. To add further insult to injury, they used a mugshot as his picture uh, when, they were, when they ran the story. So media assassination of young black men as criminals, as thugs, this is nothing, this is nothing singular. But what really gets me is that KUTV2 News did this in Utah. Jeremy was, for the most part, part of the community. Apparently, he was adopted by two white parents uh, raised in the church, and he had some sense of community in this spot where he was. He also, they also didn't conveniently gloss over the fact that he may have been somewhere on the autism spectrum. At least that's what his friends uh, said following his death. But still... It took KUTV2 News a while to amend that story, to omit his criminal history, and even worse were the comments on the article. I was on social media the other day looking at the comments on the story that ran, and there was way too many people, people that I suspect are going to church this Sunday, who are talking about how this young man deserved to die, talking about how the person who shot him did people a service, talking about how necessary it was to, you know, clean up these streets how thankful they were that this young man was there to kill this guy. But no one talking about how this young man could have just called 911, waited for the cops to handle it. This man could have used non-lethal means to stop this attack Mm -hmm. because, again, this young man was, because, again, Jeremy Swanson was unarmed. You know, there wasn't really a lot of talk in that vein. And I'm quite certain a lot of these people making these comments are people that are going to have the sacrament passed to them this Sunday. And that really bothers me. Yeah, the, some of my reactions are the guy on the behind the gun. Unfortunately, we don't know his name, or I don't know his name. I don't know if it's been released. It has not been released, and you know, I suspect they're doing that. They're not releasing his name or the girl's name, who we already have an idea of their identity, or at least her identity, because only there's only like one white woman that fits the description as far as people in this in Jeremy Swanson's life. Yeah, the only thing I can think is that the the guy behind the gun must have not seen Jeremy as a human mm-hmm. in that moment. It sounds harsh, but the but the reality is harsher. You know, um I think that if if this dude would have seen, oh, that's a fellow white dude fighting or abusing this woman, he would have done something different, right? He would have seen a connection and be like, "Oh, we're we're both white men. I'm going to stick up for her in a way that there's like so many other things that could have been been done. Yeah, that that the 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 amount of force was not at all proportionate to the to the, to the threat to, to the threat. There's there's ways of de-escalating. Um, there's nonviolent ways of like literally. If I saw something like that, I've I've been in nonviolent um, direct action trainings where we're taught like what you do is you get between them and you take the blows yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they'll eventually stop, or if they don't, then someone will come and, and absorb the blows from you. And, and then it, it'll there's, – there's just so many ways that, that this could have prevented. And I think about – so I'm an educator, 
and I deal with students, uh, many students on the autism spectrum, and even for students of all abilities, I've been taught to give five to seven seconds of processing time when I give students instructions. Um, and when people are stressed or in a very threatened or um, uh, high, highly agitated situation, they need even more processing time because so much of their um, fight or flight response overcrowds their rational processing ability. And so I give students this time. No, and the other thing, and so I can see that whether or not this guy was on the spectrum, I can see how this went so horribly wrong. And I think what was hor so horribly wrong first is that this white guy has a gun to begin with, right? Yep. And is patrolling the street like like a rancher would patrol um, for coyotes. That's literally how it feels. I hate to make that parallel because like I, I don't think. A jailer would patrol. A plantation. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, I can't, I just cannot believe that this guy looked at, at Jeremy and found a peer, someone that he could talk to, someone he could, you know, he could have a conversation with. He's like, no, I'm just going to eliminate the problem. Yeah. I just find that awful. And I, and I find the reaction of, of, of uh, the rest of people, which I didn't read the comments, wise um that's that's not that's not at all helpful to to say these things um we should remember jeremy and we should we should remember his family and his friends um and most importantly we should keep that at the center and then figure out ways that this never happens again although it's going to be again and again and yep. again i don't i can't i can't do anything right here in my room about it i can other than tell the world, which is what I'm doing, this is not okay, and we need to do something about it. And it's not just the mistake of one white man. This is the mistake of centuries of a structural component that has delegitimized people of color's right to exist in, yeah. our, in, in, in the same space that we all exist in and have every right to. Um, so, yeah. All right. I think that's all we need to say about that. Um you know, his funeral service has already happened, and, um, you know, many of the folks in Utah have made an effort to show up. Just want to say thank you to those people who are in Utah who didn't directly know Jeremy's family but made an effort to show up to his uh, homegoing service. And uh, hopefully, you know, I'm not too hopeful, but I am hoping that this opens a dialogue in the future uh, with regard to policing, with regard to vigilante justice, with regard to the value of black life in the homes of, you know, both black and white folks alike, because if there's anything that this whole story has made known unto me is that this conversation needs to happen more. And this is, again, why I suggested that people watch the movie when they see us, because we, we need to understand this trauma. We need to understand this pain. We need to understand the humanity of black people so that we can be more effective ministers to them. Mm -hmm. And this just isn't spiritually. This is... You know, this is in the legal system. This is in the healthcare system. This is in education. This is in every aspect of American life that we need to do better to understand our brothers and sisters in these communities so that things like what happened to Jeremy Sorensen do not happen again in the future. So with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, end the show, but uh, do so with a couple of announcements. Um, we are going to be adding more content to the show, but to preserve the length of uh, current episodes, 
We are probably going to make this content as bonus content. We had talked about doing topical episodes as bonus content. Mm-hmm. So if you do have suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover, please uh, you know, send us your suggestions. We have an email address now, beyondtheblockpodcast at gmail.com. You can also comment on any of our Facebook posts. You can tweet at us. We're at... We're on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS on both Instagram and Twitter. So please get at us in that way just to connect with us or to send us your suggestions. We're also open to receiving questions. If you have gospel-centered questions, we'll happily take those, and we'll add those to our bonus content or to our episodes as time permits. And we will hope to hear from you guys soon. Thank you. See you later.